talk to God in prayer right now. Lord, we thank you for quiet moments of reflection where we can look at the cross and we can celebrate who you are and we can know deep in our soul that there is a God who reaches down to us and walks alongside of us crucified himself for us to pay the penalty for our sin to be in relationship with him so we could receive the embrace of the Father. So this morning, Lord, in the moments of celebration, in the moments of quietness, in the moments of reflection, help us to hear the good confession that comes down through the ages that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are, uh, in case you hadn't noticed, it's Easter Sunday morning. Things are a little bit different here. And uh, down through the ages, there was a common greeting given in the church, especially on Easter Sunday morning, that went something like this. It went, he is risen, and then the other person who heard that would say back to you, he is risen indeed, okay? So we're going to try that out this morning, because I tried that with some of you, and some of you knew it. And some of you are like, I didn't know that one, okay? So I'm going to say he is risen, and you're going to say back to me, he is risen indeed. And I want it to kind of build over three times so that the tent just lifts a little bit off the parking lot here today, okay? So I'm going to say he is risen, you're going to respond, he is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen He is risen He is risen I think it lifted a little bit. I think the neighbors know we're here this morning in the last couple of days. So it is Easter and he is risen indeed. Today we're wrapping up a series called Glad That You Asked. It's based on questions that Jesus asked that are recorded for us in the Gospels and in the first part of the book of Acts. If you tabulate all of them, you come up to roughly about 295 to 297 different questions that the great rabbi, the Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, asked of his audience in order to engage them in life-changing conversations with him. Now, we've only handled four of those. So this series will not continue for the next four years. We're going to wrap it up today just with those four questions. But the question that we're wrapping up today is another profound question of Jesus. And the question is this, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? You know, when I looked and was doing some research about questions, I found there's all different kinds of motivations for asking questions. But when you boil it down, there's probably three categories that most questions fit into. First, there's the rhetorical question. This is when somebody asks you a question, you kind of both know what the response is going to be, and you don't even need to actually say the response of the question in order to get it. But it just kind of gets people on the same page, the rhetorical question. The second kind of question it's just a, takes the rhetorical question a little bit further. It's a leading question. It's a leading question, okay? And leading questions uh, go somewhat like this. You know, someone asks you a question. It's kind of rhetorical, but they're trying to lead you into well, what might be the next step or the next truth about this thing that we're agreeing upon. Guys, this type of question, this type of leading question, is kind of like when your wife asks you, whose underwear are those on the floor in the bedroom? And... You know, if you're wise, you just say that they're yours. 
But really, it's, it's not just a rhetorical question, yeah, they're mine. It's a leading question. And the leading question is, well, then what are they doing there and not in the hamper kind of a thing? And I have to tell you, on my more dark days of my soul, I want to give her a response like this. Well, they better be mine, or I have a few questions of my own. <laughs> so there's rhetorical questions. There's leading questions. But there's also profound questions. And Jesus was a master of encapsulating and asking about the profound. Profound questions are simple and clear. They're thought-provoking. They generate intrigue and inquiry of the person that's asked. They pull assumptions deep within a person up to the surface, and they open up brand new possibilities for that person's life and existence. Jesus was a master of framing profound questions that started on the exterior but peeled into the layers of life right into a soul of a person and addressed them. The ramifications of the answers to those questions are deep and have a lot to do with our not only existence here but our existence for eternity. As Jesus today asks us to consider, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? The Master framed this question so well over 2,000 years ago that we're still considering it this morning. That's how good the question still is. It peels down through the course of time and comes into our ears, appeals to our soul, pulls us into a conversation with the resurrected Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit ordained by the Father for us this morning. I want you to listen to how Jesus framed this question to his early followers over 2,000 years ago. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Well, he replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. While others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and the powers of hell will not be able to conquer it. Notice the framework of Jesus' question. If you read over this text too quickly and don't do some homework, you'll miss it. Jesus used a certain geographical location called Caesarea Philippi. And we have to know a little couple things about that or we quickly go over it and we miss the framework of the beautiful piece of artwork of this question that Jesus was handing to us. Because Caesarea Philippi was a place of ancient worship down through the centuries. The name Caesarea Philippi is named after Caesar Augustus and also the tetrarch or the governor Philip. And so he named it after him. So it was a, any place that was named after one of the Caesars, a temple, a great temple would be erected to Caesar worship. And Caesar would be worshipped there. So there we know from archaeology that there was a huge temple there erected in Caesarea Philippi to the worship of the Caesars. We also know that many other gods were worshipped there, the god Pan. Right here we have a picture of Caesarea Philippi today. And no doubt Jesus was standing with this backdrop behind him. You see the cave that's there. The cave has a set of steps that go down to a spring, and the spring wells up, and it's one of the springs that feeds the Jordan River. 
But you also notice in the sides of the cliff, there are places that are carved out. They were carved out because different idols, the god Pan, the idol Pan would be there. The idol from from the, the Syrians would be there. There were different idols down through the ages. So Jesus is standing, and here's this backdrop behind him of all of these gods, and he's saying, who do you say in comparison to all these gods that I am? One commentator put it this way. Jesus stands in an area littered with the temples of the Syrian gods, in a place where the ancient Greek gods looked down, in a place where the history of Israel crowded in on the minds of men. It was a place where the white marble splendor of the home of Caesar worship dominated the landscape and compelled the eye. And there of all places, the amazing carpenter stands, and he asks the men who they believe him to be, and he expects this answer, the Son of God. It is as if Jesus, it is, is as if Jesus deliberately set himself up against the background of the world's religions in all of their history and splendor, and demanded to be compared with them and have the verdict be rendered in his favor. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus is a master of framing profound questions. And that question comes down even to us today. And so as we consider the question and we consider the answer given by Simon Peter, we're going to look at two truths today and ask you to consider the answer to that question. Who is Jesus to you? Is he the Christ? Is he the son of the living God? So let's look at that. You pull your notes out and get ready to take some uh, notes there. The first, who do you say that Jesus is? Is he the Christ? Is he the Christ? When Peter said that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, Messiah comes from the Hebrew word for the saving one, or the rescuing one, and Christ is the Greek equivalent of that, the saving or wrestling one. So they're interchangeable. They just come from two different languages, Hebrew and also from the Greek culture, okay? And so uh, because the original Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the original New Testament was written in Greek, you have Hebrew and Greek, okay? So you kind of understand. Same word, traveling over time there, okay? So he's saying you're the Messiah or you're the Christ. You're the saving one, the rescuing one, the one sent from God, to atone for our sins, okay? And he's saying a mouthful here. There's no way that we this morning can look into all of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ or the Messiah. There's a great breadth to this title that Simon Peter is giving and is noting who Christ is. And it covers all of history and all of redemptive history. And so I just want to spend a couple of moments kind of looking at those major themes of history. In Genesis, we have the account of God creating the heavens and the earth and people. And we hear again and again in Genesis 1 and 2, as God is creating us, we hear this phrase over and over again, and it is good. And it is good. It followed the intention of the Creator. It didn't rebel against the Creator. It cooperated with the Creator. As a matter of fact, there's a picture in Genesis that says, That God came to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Think about the cool of the day later on. That's a great picture. Everything was good. And it was created for good. But then there was the rebellion or the fall. In the rebellion or the fall, Adam and Eve decided that they could make decisions about good and evil without the input of God. 
they could be like God, knowing good and evil without Him. They didn't need Him. And that's what original sin is. Saying to God, I don't need you. I can make decisions between good and evil without you because I am like you. And I have the ability to do that without you. And so that's what happened in the fall. So that's the second stream of history. We have God creating everything for good. We have it being broken because of the rebellion. And then we have the Messiah being introduced who is the rescuer who comes down, sent by God to pay for the penalty for sin, to atone for sin, so that in the fourth part of this grand epic that God is writing down through the ages, things can be restored back to their original intention for the good. And that's why it says in the book of Revelation, near the end of that book, that Jesus Christ, when He returns, broadcasts and says this phrase, Behold, I am making everything new. I am returning everything back to the good. The way the Father made it. I'm restoring everything back to the Creator's intention the way that He made it was good. And so we have this breath of all of history being covered in this one phrase, you are the Messiah, you are the rescuing one, you are the central figure who turns the tide of the rebellion back toward God. You are the saving one who lays down His life. In Old Testament history, it talks again and again from Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament, about this atoning sacrifice, the need for somebody else to pay on behalf of another to cover the penalty of their sin so we don't have to atone for our sin on our own. The Old Testament is littered with it. It starts in Genesis when God makes a covering to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. And we see perhaps the first atoning sacrifice of the animal that is sacrificed, innocent for the guilty, to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. Then we roll the clock ahead a little bit. And we see the time of Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham takes Isaac to the mountain. He thinks he's going to need to sacrifice him, but God, when he sees the need for an atoning sacrifice on behalf, he provides a ram in the thicket so that Isaac can be spared, the son of prophet, uh, the son of, that, that is promised, and that, and that the redemptive history can move forward there. Also, we see then later on in the, in the Passover lamb, we see a type of Christ there too, where the Passover lamb covers. And so the firstborn sons of Israel are spared and the people of Israel can go on and redemptive history can continue and is not precluded at that point. We see the need for this atoning sacrifice, this substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. And then, of course, we see it again in something called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, they would take two uh, totally pure animals, lambs or rams. One would be sacrificed inside the Holy of Holies by the great high priest. He would take it in there on behalf of the people. He would go in and enter. He would be a mediator between them and God and sacrifice that as a sign, as a type, as a pushing forward to Christ as an image, as an illustration that the Messiah would come and He would be the fulfillment of that sacrifice. Then He would come back out and He would announce to the people that the sacrifice was made. But they would also bring a second pure goat, ram, or lamb to Him. And He would, as the great high priest, lay his, as the high priest, excuse me, lay His hands upon, and when He laid His hands on, He would then begin 
to confess out loud all of the sins that the people had confessed earlier that day on the Day of Atonement. Adultery, stealing, lying, false worship, controlling and manipulating, coveting, out loud, confessing as though he was confessing the sins and putting them on the head of this ram. And then that ram would be led out into the desert and led into confusion so it couldn't wander back and it would die in the desert with the sins figuratively of the people upon it. And so to this day, we use a term called scapegoat or scapegoating. And that's where it comes from. That great scapegoat. All the guilt, all the sin, everything placed on them. So when Jesus shows up and John the Baptist is preaching, and he points to Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is in fact saying, Behold, the great scapegoat who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Messiah, the one who has come. And so when Simon Peter makes this declaration, something that we refer to as the good confession, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God, he is saying the Messiah is here. Redemptive history takes a turn for the better. The Messiah has come, and he will lay himself down as a sacrifice. In his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, author Josh McDowell outlines the 29 specific prophecies given over 500 years before Christ walked this earth. And then he looks at the life of Christ and he lays them down against each other. And you can see that the 29 exact specific prophecies about the Messiah are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we have to, with Peter, ask ourselves if he fulfills all these prophecies and no other person. There were many other people who claimed to be the Messiah back during Jesus' time. None of them died. None of them rose again. None of them fulfilled all 29 prophecies from the Old Testament, but Jesus did. So we have to ask ourselves, is that a coincidence or is that God at work in redemptive history sending just in the nick of time the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Like Peter, we have to ask ourselves, is he the Christ? Is he the son of the living God? And that's what Easter is all about. Once again, considering that profound question, what do I believe about Jesus Christ? And what you believe matters. Your decision matters. Your answer matters. We want to show you a video now of a few people in our church family who have not only confessed Jesus Christ, as the Christ and the Son of the living God, but they've experienced and are experiencing His life-changing power, His peace, His help in troubled times. They are experiencing the power of the atoning sacrifice of Christ in their life. And these are some of their short stories for you to encourage you this morning. Let's watch this video together. Like 
question today is, who do you say that Jesus is? Is he the Christ? Is he the Son of the living God? Our second point this morning, because Peter gave a twofold answer that day. You are the Christ, and you are the Son of the living God. How you respond matters. Your input to this question has everything to do with your life here and your eternal destiny. Forever. Peter told us that Jesus was the Christ. He confessed that he was the Messiah, the powerful one, the one powerful enough to come and turn the tide of sin forever. But he also revealed that God is not just powerful, he is personal. He is the Son of the living God. Listen to the terminology here it connotes family, it connotes a father. It connotes a son. It connotes children. It connotes an older brother and a younger brother. It talks all about the family of God. Many places in the New Testament, Jesus refers to God as the Father or the Father's embrace. He talks about the Holy Spirit being the promise of the Father. And so God, our great Father, sends His Son on our behalf, to find us out, to track us down, and to personally help us face the question that can help turn the tide in our lives toward redemption and renewal and cooperation and relationship with God. Who am I? Who do you believe that I am? In Luke chapter 15, records Jesus teaching about the intention of God's kingdom. If you look at the beginning of that chapter, it seems 
as though the religious elite of Jesus' day are criticizing him for welcoming and eating with sinners. And so Jesus, instead of directly answering their disappointment and their critique of him about spending time with people who are they would consider far from God, he just responds with a number of stories. Three stories, in fact, in a row about things that are lost and things that are found. He starts with the story of a lost sheep. Then he moves to a story of a lost coin. And finally, he ends with the story of a lost son. It's interesting that in the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin, he points out that something of great value has been lost. And then an all-out search occurs, moving both heaven and earth to find it. And finally, when it's found, there is a great celebration. And so, in the teaching pattern of that day, his listeners would be expecting, okay, he's going to follow the same pattern with the third story. But there's a difference between a sheep and a coin and a son, isn't there? Even when I say the words, a sheep, a coin, and I say son, it connotes a person, some personal value there. And so in the third story, he reveals that something of great value has been lost, and he also talks about the great celebration that takes place when it is found. But what happens to the all-out search? The father is sitting, waiting for the son to return. The elder brother, who in the culture of that day would have been the one who was assigned or just went and did the all-out search, was not out searching. And so Jesus is indicting them. He's saying, you, you snobby religious people who sit around passing judgment on these folks that I'm hanging out with, you were to be the older brother who helped them find their way back into the Father's embrace. But you wouldn't do it, and so that's my role. That's what I do. That's who I hang out with. That's how I come to be personal with. I am the elder brother sent by the father to rescue the younger son when he's stuck in a pig pen far from home and needs to return. You see, in the story of the prodigal, the younger son demanded his inheritance early, which would have embarrassed the whole family because stocks, things would have had to have been liquidated In order for him to get his inheritance early, he left, he goes out, he squanders it on wild living his own way, and then he finds himself stuck. And so he tries to atone for his own sin, as many of us do. And he finds a job, and he lives in a pig pen, he's living in squalor, and he's saying, I got a plan, I'm going to go back and tell the father, I don't deserve to be embraced in the family anymore, I'll just be a servant and live outside the gates, trying to atone, we all try to atone for our own sins. But Jesus is saying, nothing doing with the Father. He sent me to find him, to bring him back into the embrace of the Father. And that's why I'm here. I'm the missing part of that story. And I'm on an all-out search to find that which was lost that is of great value to the Father to bring it back to him so it can be embraced by him. A few years ago, I was putting together a series called Finding Your Way Back to God, and I found this piece of artwork on the internet. Um, It was done by an artist called Charlie McKaysey. Charlie McKaysey lives in England. I don't know him personally, but he was willing to start to email me back and forth about the painting. And I said, could I use your painting for my series, and how much will it cost me? 
I figured he needed to make a living as an artist. He's probably a starving artist, like most artists are. And he was kind enough to say, use it however you will. God inspired that, and I just like to see the different way people use it. So I got the email and back. I said, well, why did you paint it this way? I thought, well, I was in his good graces. I'm going to ask a couple of questions of him. And uh, so he said, I painted it this way because I saw that, the, that, that the son, in the prodigal son's story, I could see that the prodigal was just worn out and tired and needed not only embraced, but needed to be lifted and carried to the table of the family once again. And so I just wanted it to be that way. And, and then I just started to write out the story of the prodigal over top of the piece of artwork. And so I did that. And so this morning, as we look at this beautiful piece of artwork by this man from Great Britain, who was kind enough to let us all look at it for free today, let us be inspired and let us ask the question of ourselves. Not only is he the Christ, is he the son, is he the son of the living God who has tracked you down today and has you in this room to face the question against the backdrop of all of your life and all the other gods that could be worshipped. He has you here today on Easter Sunday to consider that question. Will I accept the hand of the Son who picks me up and brings me back into the Father's embrace that awaits for me? In his book, Who Is This Man? author and pastor John Ortberg refers to Jesus as the man who will not go away. He traces history, he traces art, he traces science, and he shows that Jesus is his man that won't go away. He's his man that keeps showing up with his questions even 2,000 years later. He writes this, maybe Jesus was just a sympathetic figure who happened to come along when the Roman infrastructure was good and Greek philosophy was undermining the gods when paganism was dying and social systems were collapsing, when stability was down and anxiety was up and gullibility was strong. Maybe it was just dumb luck. But maybe Jesus was just a kind and simple, innocent soul with a good mom and a knack for catchy sayings who showed up in the right place at the right time. Jesus Gump. Maybe he was just Jesus Gump. Maybe his place in history is just a remarkable accident. But maybe... Maybe it isn't. Maybe God interjected the sun in history when things were created to be good, but they were fallen and broken, and a Savior was needed to turn the tide so that God can, in the fullness of time, make everything new. Maybe He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who has changed the course of history. But the question today comes down to you and I, who do you and I say that Jesus is? And will we, with Peter, and our full heart and soul say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In the next few moments, I want to pray, and then we're going to move into a time of response and then have some baptisms this morning. But I want us to put our chin on our chest right now and close our eyes. In these quiet moments, I'm going to lift up a prayer to God. If you want to pray that prayer after me, you can. If you want to pray a prayer in your own words from your own soul, you can do that. Let's talk to him in prayer about this confession. Jesus, I want to thank you for engaging our souls this morning with this question. 
By doing so, we've seen that you're powerful. Powerful enough to pay the penalty for our sins so we don't have to self-atone and find ourselves outside of your kingdom. But we can be welcomed into your kingdom. But you're also a personal God that sought me out when I was lost. And you've ushered me back into the embrace of the Father. So this Easter morning, along with people of faith down through the ages, and many in this room, I make the good confession. Because I believe you are the Christ, Son of the living God. And I pray that from my soul to you in thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Like that piece of artwork we looked at earlier, all of our lives tell a story. I talked to you about God's grander story, but all of our stories need to intersect God's grander story at some time to give them the true fullness and meaning they were intended to have. The next song that we're going to hear tells the story of its writer, who at a young age made a confession of faith, but like the prodigal, wandered off, and he lived in the shallows for most of his young life, finding it meaningless after a while without a life of faith. And so he finds himself drawn back home to the table of God where once again he confirms his faith through this good confession that was handed down by Peter so many years before. I want you to listen to the words. I want them to move your soul. The words and the music. And during the same time, I want each and every one of us to fill out a response card and just respond to God. You might just want to write the good confession there. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is your time in the service to respond to God. As you listen to the words and the music of this song, let it move your soul closer to the embrace of the Father. Just nine years old I heard the call and came They buried me Beneath the water And then I rose again Well, you know my dad was a preacher man I walked the aisle and I took his hand said, son, just do the best you can and say these words. I believe he is the Christ, the son of a living God. Through the
Till I heard a song that took my hand and led me home. She said, I believe He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yes, I believe He is the Christ. The Son of the Living God. All I know is that I was blind, but now I see. Though I kick and scream, love is leading me. And every step of the way, His grace is making me. With every breath I breathe, He is saved.
Amen. You can be seated. In both of our services today, there was about 20 people who signed up in advance to be baptized, and we're grateful for that. However, in the Bible, we notice that often people were baptized in the moment of their faith or in a moment of rededication to God. And so this morning, noticing that that's a biblical precedent, we wanted to give anybody else here who would like to be baptized this morning the opportunity to do that. And uh, so this morning, maybe you're thinking, I'd like to get baptized, but I'm not sure if I'm ready. If you understand that baptism is an outward reflection or expression of an inward spiritual transformation that's taken place in your life when you accepted God by faith, then you're probably about as ready as you're going to get. Also, maybe today you're saying, I I wish I could get baptized, but I'm not ready to make a speech. I don't like to get up there and talk a lot like Pastor Joel does. I'm not a blabbermouth like him. You don't need to make a speech. You just need to come up and talk to one of our pastors up here. and Pastor Ron O'Neill is right there. You meet with him. Share your story with him. And when you get in to get baptized, he'll introduce you and he'll just briefly summarize your story. And then we'll baptize you. No speeches needed. Maybe you're saying, I wish you could be baptized, but I didn't bring a towel or an extra change of clothes. But we're prepared to help. We have some scrubs and some sweatpants and so forth, and we have a train-changing place for you. If you'd like to get baptized today, we wanted to pave the way for you to be able to do that. Maybe you're saying, I wish I could get baptized, but I'm too young. And if you're between 12 and 17 and you're here with your parents, you probably should ask them first and then maybe bring them along with you. But if you're beyond 17 years old, you can make that choice for yourself come and be baptized today. We'd like to be part of that. Maybe you're saying, I wish I could get baptized, but I'm not a member of this church. That's okay. If you believe in the Christ and the Son of the living God, you're part of God's family worldwide. And we just want to welcome you and love you and share this moment with you where you confess that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so if during this next song, You want to find your way over to Pastor Ron and the others that are getting baptized and join them. There'll be about 16 people before you in line to get baptized, but we would love to do that today. And what better day than the day that we celebrate the resurrection for you to enjoy a moment in the Father's embrace getting baptized. So I ask you all to stand as we sing this next song. And if you are so moved by God, come forward and be baptized with the other folks who are getting baptized this morning. Let's sing this song to God together.